Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to get time and tide off their chest. The podcast where our history community gets to cut out the nonsense from history and make sure it's done without an anaesthetic. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here, as ever, with my good friend and fellow angry archivist, Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week, dear ragers, we're going back to the 19th century and the gruesome world of early pioneering surgery. And to mop our brow as we amputate this period, we are joined by curator of the Surgeon's Hall Museum in Edinburgh, our second guest from this museum, Louise Wilkie. Louise, welcome to History Rage. Hello, thank you so much for having me on. You're welcome. Um, I love the concept of the show. Good, good. Feeling angry? Feeling angry. You've got a new fan in me, for sure. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, and I gather when we get to your rage as well, you're, it's pretty unanimous across <laughs> your colleagues at Surgeon's Hall Museum that we should really be going after this one. It is indeed. It was the number one suggestion I got when I asked everybody <laughs> what their rage was in medical history. So I think we're on to a winner. I think we could be onto a winner here. Mm-hmm. So Definitely. we actually launched our podcast with your conservator of human remains, Cat uh, Irvin. Um, without the Surgeon's Hall Museum, we would be nothing. Yes. <laughs> uh, now, than that, and I, I'm into medical history because I'm both a former anatomy student and I'm a historian of body snatching as well. Mm-hmm. But can you spare us a moment to tell our audience about you and your background and your museum? and how you've ended up where you are. Okay, so I have a history degree, but instead of going down that academic path, I took a stroll along the Heritage Trail and completed a postgraduate degree in museum studies and have about 10 years, well, 12 years experience in museums now before reaching the curator post here at Surgeon's Hall. So I've been curator at Surgeon's Hall for about five years. My background is mainly Scottish history, so uh, medical history was a bit of a new field for me when I arrived there five years ago. Uh, and now it just seems so surprising to me that how little is known, how little is taught about Scotland's historic and current contribution to the development of medicine um, mm. throughout history. So now that's kind of my main mission to shout out this loud as possible, um, because it really is an area and should be an area of national pride. Um, yeah. And in fact, our collections at the museum are recognised by the Scottish government of being of national significance to the history of people of Scotland. So it just goes to show Um, So my research started at the museum mainly focused on the history of Scottish forensic medicine, which had its birthplace in Edinburgh. Women in surgery is another key area that I've been looking at. But the 19th century was a time of huge surgical advancement. And what I found about looking at that century is there's always something or someone else to learn about. Yeah, and it's it's pretty graphic stuff as well, isn't it? Very. But also it's been kind of, dare I use the phrase, (laughs) doctored by an awful lot of like modern narrative and it's one of those areas of history i've found that you can't help but compare then to now yeah it's it's an easy way to kind of look at yeah how terrifying surgery was compared to yeah to what it is now yes so well let's uh, start off then because you're itching to get to the rage so (laughs) now that we know a little bit about you louise with all the emotion that you feel it warrants would you please tell our uh, theatre audience of uh, History Rages, what you wish people would just stop believing. So my History Rage is that it's this depiction of 19th century surgeons as these butchering showmen, particularly in the context of surgeons like Robert Liston. So this kind of idea um, that they were just performing to the crowd, this, having, this idea of a 300% mortality rate from one surgery, it's just 
melodrama and sensationalism. And I think it does such a disservice to their contributions to the development of surgery during that period. So yes, surgeons of that era were quick. And yes, they often operated in lecture theatres uh, type environments, but it was out of necessity and teaching, not showmanship, in my opinion. Okay, so we're going to come round to debunking this myth in a little bit shortly, but just for the non-medical historians yes. out there, if you could just outline what the the two big myths about Robert Liston would be. The, the you- 300% mortality rate and the timed amputation, I believe, is what you're after. Yes, there. so the two big stories are that he accidentally killed three people during one surgery, during one amputation, and that he used to walk into the um, kind of lecture room environment before an operation and say, time me, gentlemen, in a very kind of showmanship-like way. Both of which I think, well, one I definitely think is completely rubbish, and the other one uh, just exaggerated to a great extent. And I think what we have to remember about Liston's day, so he was operating between in the 1810s up to the 1840s, that there was no effective form of pain relief or anesthesia. Uh, patients were awake, facing extreme pain. There was no understanding of infection. That wasn't even really a word at that stage and wouldn't be until the 1860s. So these two factors may- meant that surgery was always the last option because the death rates were high and the pain threshold was just too much. So it was the last option and it had to be quick. That is the kind yeah. of point. It wasn't a showmanship. <laughs> I don't have to be the quickest. It was just to get the patients through um, and to kind of stop patients dying from shock. Yeah, because really at that point, if you're doing something like an amputation and you're doing it without an anaesthetic, I mean, I can't speak for having had anything done without an anaesthetic. You have to put me under just to go to the dentist. Indeed. But yeah, people move when you stick large knives into their lower limbs. And that's Mm. got to be dangerous, even more dangerous than the actual surgery itself. So you want it through and done and clear. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Between blood loss, shock, all the things that could go wrong in the operating theatre as quickly as possible was the the way forward. Yeah. And just to build that 300% mortality kind of myth there, then, as I understand it, he, and I am going quite basic here, he kills his patient. Yes. So they, which happens, you know. Yeah, that, that uh, part's believable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of, one of those things. And then he, with, with, the, with, with the flourish of the knife, catches a, an assistant who then dies of septicemia. He loses two fingers and dies yep, uh, later of... And one spectator mm-hmm. has a heart attack. Is that the myth? Yes, that's the myth. It kind of varies with the spectator, but I believe yeah, it was either splashed with blood and all that flourishing of the knife, or he's, or his coat was kind of ripped open with the knife, one of the two, and he died of shock on the spot from a heart attack. Yeah. So why is this bollocks? <laughs> so there doesn't appear to be any primary evidence of this whatsoever. A lot of historians have now kind of researched it back to try and find the original source, which appears to be a book called Great Medical Disasters, which was written in the 1980s by Richard Gordon, who was an anaesthetist and then became a writer. Mm. And all these kind of great medical disasters, when it comes to Robert Liston, he kind of references the kind of the entire chapter with two uh, references, neither of which are contemporary sources and neither of which mention the actual event. So I think what's happened is he's almost just heard this story that's been passed down and written it as fact, effectively. 
I would argue, given the fact that Liston is a renowned surgeon by this point and a very outspoken critic of others, I very much doubt that if this story had been true, and bear in mind Liston did operate in these kind of lecture theatre environments, so there was always witnesses, Mm. if it had taken place, that it would not have been widely publicised at the time because it would have kind of shown a weakness in this kind of great surgeon and I'm sure his critics would have jumped on him. Like, for example, a mistake that Robert Liston did make was a boy of nine had came into the University Hospital London, had a lump in his neck, which Robert Liston assumed was a tumour. His assistant apparently tried to convince Liston that it was pulsating, which would kind of hint that it was an aneurysm. But Liston felt it was just too unusual to see a child of that age with an aneurysm. Cut into the tumour, the boy immediately lost large amount of arterial blood and even the listening managed to tie off the artery the boy later died and now that story is was well known at the time the critics wrote about it in pamphlets mm-hmm. etc it was known so if he killed one person one surgery and that was known i'm sure if he killed three people it would have been even more known yeah because when you've got somebody that outspoken it's mm. gonna be you're gonna have yeah. pissed off some other medics and you're surgeons gonna have, yeah. you're gonna have pissed off some journalists particularly as i understand it <laughs> one of the Three that were supposedly killed, I believe, was a journalist. Was I thinking? See, I've heard that. Yeah, that's the story varies so yeah, often. I have no <laughs> idea. But that's that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you so, kill a journalist yeah, I mean, in an operating yeah. theatre, somebody's going to write about that, aren't they? It's going to crop up in the obituary. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So this then starts with the with with it being written in this book. Then, how do we see this myth then? progressing is it just a case of it's it's just too good a story to pass up too good a story and i think i think it helps buy into this idea that surgery was so primitive in those days you know it's that idea how terrifying it was that a surgeon could you know were so blood hungry that they could cut off their assistant fingers (laughs) kill their patient scare their audience um it just fits into that kind of narrative about 19th century surgery the kind of romantic side the kind of the dark mm. uh, medical history i think but yeah it's amazing if you google yeah. robert liston it's the first thing that comes up and a lot of replical books and websites uh, that that story is there as fact yeah you you can't help but trip over it and i've i've heard it myself from some quite leading historians yeah so liston himself he's pretty well known known in inverted commas as the greatest surgeon of his age and the fastest knife in the West End. Um, but is he all that? Is he all he's cracked up to be? What flaws did he have as a as a surgeon and as a person? I would have to say he definitely earned that reputation. Um, the kind of area of his skill, interestingly, that he was most commented on by his peers is actually his dexterity, not the speed. So he just had this amazing kind of nimbleness and efficiency with his hands, which some historians say hasn't been seen since. You know, he was just almost like one of a kind. And I think that's just what made him so suitable for surgery. In fact, he often wrote about how he did surgeries that no one else could do. So he would amputate solo. He could hold the limb cut and uh, tie off arteries at the same time because his hands were that quick and he was that skilled and no one else could do this. You know, everyone else using the system. And that, that dexterity obviously meant that he was quick at performing these kind of surgical procedures. And I think there's a reason that Liston was the first surgeon in the UK to undertake an operation using anesthesia merely a year after mm. it was discovered by dentists in uh, America. And that's 
because he was incredibly innovative. You know, he was always looking at ways to improve the surgical experience for his patients and to kind of progress the ability of surgery. And anesthesia really gave surgeons the opportunity to explore further surgical areas, including the abdomen mm. and brain, which just hadn't been thought possible beforehand. And I think it's such a shame that he passed away only a year afterwards, because I would love to have seen what he would have done if he had anesthesia in his arsenal, mm. you know, if he had that ability. And if you look at some of his more known cases, it really is extraordinary he could have performed some of these. And I think I have to say that with complete recognition for the patient, because how these patients went through some of these surgeries, I do not know. Unconscious, I believe, just not at the start. <laughs> well, in some cases, not. In some cases, not, which just blows my mind how they got through it. See, you know, he was the fastest knife in the West. I, I think also he could do it quicker, cleaner, and more efficiently than a lot efficiently than a lot of his predecessors, which kind of gave him that reputation. And because it was quick, it was, I guess, less traumatic, which made him popular towards patients. You know, patients would seek mm. out Robert Liston, and it gave him that reputation, mm. and probably improved his patient survival rate. But one of the best ones we have in our museum is a cast of a tumour that was removed from a Mrs. Fraser from Bangkok in 1934. And this tumour took up the entire side of her face, completely obscured everything she could see. It pulled down her mouth. And he removed this tumour with her sitting in a seat and then lay her down once the tumour was out to tie off the arteries. And the tumour was nine inches long. And bear in mind, this is pre-anesthesia. Are they, this was a tumour on her face? This is a tumour on her face, yeah. Her face isn't nine inches long, is it? <laughs> That's it. I mean, it was so I mean, it was so big. It was right, yeah. at, you know. We've, the cast we've got shows her with the tumour attached and then it shows her without alongside the tumour and it is huge. You know, picture kind of like a large tennis ball, effectively. But when he writes up the surgery, which I think is interesting for Liston at this time, he talks about the patient numerous times. So the first thing he says was that she had made up her mind. She was determined to undergo this operation. And I've, I've read things that he's written before where he said, you know, you can't, don't take the patient into the room if the patient thinks they're going to die. So if they're panicking, if they think, you know, they're screaming, this isn't going to work, I don't want to go. He was always about getting the patient in the right mindset. I mm. think that's kind of ahead of his time. He said that she bore it with the utmost courage and barely murmured. How? I do not know. And also that kind of patient care. So he moved to London about a month after that surgery, left her in the hands of his colleagues who'd made a gold plate to hide the hole that was in her face effectively. She, apparently she was stuffing it full of bread just to keep out uh, any <laughs> uh, foreign bodies. Yeah, bread apparently has a bit of a, a like an antibiotic um So yeah, she did well there. And then one of his surgeons wrote to him and said, a couple of months later saying in a word she's one of the happiest women I'm acquainted with so it kind of shows him a bit more feeling than the Robert Liston we're normally presented with his flaws I would say lie in his interactions with other surgeons rather than <laughs> with ah. his patients uh, or his surgical ability examples examples well there's tons so he was so argumentative he seems to have fallen out with a lot of people in his early years in edinburgh john barclay who was his kind of mentor people at the royal infirmary i think the most kind of frustrating one would be james syme so james syme later became mm -hmm. the president of the royal college of edinburgh uh, another kind of prominent surgeon and their fallout was so frustrating because they they were kind of the best of their time and they worked together on some so many kind of groundbreaking surgeries so many firsts effectively so in Syme's famous amputation of the hip joint, Liston assists him. And when Syme's kind of explaining why he undertook the surgery, 
he kind of he quotes Liston. This is how much respect there is between them. So the amputation of the hip joint was called the bloodiest operation in history. Nobody had tried it. Nobody tried it because it, the disastrous effects of it in the past were just, mm. you know, there's so many uh, fatalities. So Syme, to kind of explain why he tries it, is he uses Liston's own first. So he, he says, you know, if Liston hadn't tried this, then we wouldn't be doing it today. And apparently that was the tie-in of the subclavian artery. Liston does seem to be an artery pro. And that was Syme's excuse for trying the surgery. And he was very successful and it kind of put Syme on the map. Their fallout, I think, was rivalry. They were the best, and I don't think Edinburgh was big enough for the two of them. So Stein <laughs> couldn't get a job at the Royal Infirmary because the infirmary knew that they weren't getting along and didn't want the battle between Liston and Syme. And then Robert Liston was overlooked for the chair of surgery at the University of Edinburgh. They picked Syme instead, and that was enough for Robert Liston. Packed his bags, and off he went to London. Although they did resolve their differences later on. I think the best one, the absolute best example of Robert Liston, rubbing the wrong people the wrong way was when he was barred from practising at the Royal Infirmary in 1822. He was accused by his fellow surgeons of poaching patients to his own private practice. Now, Robert right. Liston completely denied this, and I have to say I kind of agree with him here. What he said to the Royal Infirmary managers was, should I be telling a patient I won't operate on them because they just happen to have visited the Royal Infirmary before? You know, where's the ethics in that, effectively? Should I send away someone sick just because the Royal Infirmary couldn't help them? But you can see where the embarrassment came from. So senior surgeons were turning away a patient saying this is inoperable. They would go to Robert Liston and he would cure them. Or worse, yeah. they were operating. It wasn't successful. They would leave the Royal Infirmary, total off to Robert, uh, Robert Liston's hospital and he would cure them himself. So it doesn't help that he was super critical as well. I mean, he would write articles in medical journals criticising old methods and quoting surgeons who stuck up for those methods. He would quote surgeons who had lost patients dur during different procedures, you know, so Syme lost this person and so-and-so date. It was name and shame. Oh, good luck. Robert Liston. So I don't think he was wrong in kind of what he was doing. I think his methods were completely wrong um, and it rankled other surgeons. They were a touchy bunch, uh, a 19th century mm. surgeons at the best of times. Uh, they always say you kind of have to have a certain level of arrogance to be a surgeon. So even today, that's quoted. <laughs> but I think, yes, a lot of kind of egos floating around. My favourite line from Robert Liston that I have read in all my research into him, when he was told by the Royal Infirmary managers he couldn't come back to the wards, his sign-off line was, you're much injured but not yet extinguished, humble servant, Robert Liston. So he, oh. was, he was down but not out, our Robert Liston. But I have to say... For a man of such pride, five years after this event, he writes to the managers in the infirmary. You know, I don't think he admits that he was poaching patients, but he does say that he was clearly wrong in his conduct towards his fellow surgeons. And he makes a very nice apology. And he's invited back onto the wars in 1828. So it takes him five years to get over this uh, <laughs> fallout, but he does seem to do the right thing. Yeah. But my ultimate favourite one is a fantastic pamphlet that I found from down in London. And I think this is an important part that Liston seems to criticise where it's actually needed. And I think a lot of his criticism mm. actually helped develop surgery. So he's often right in some of his criticism. And this is a key They're example. They're the worst kind. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so this surgeon called Yearsley made an entire pamphlet out about Liston's misconduct towards him. So Yearsley had put an article in, the, in a medical journal about using surgery to cure stammer where he would remove 
surgically remove parts of the palate, tonsils, etc. And this was his idea of curing a speech impediment. Okay. Exactly. So Robert Liston, the editors put a comment from Robert Liston underneath that said effectively that he had been he had seen with his own eyes a colleague have great success in curing stammers without surgical intervention. So I think this was effectively a speech therapist before the term speech therapist yeah. came into play. But what kind of added insult to injury to Yearsley was he said he's seen this with his own eyes. Some patients had previously been subject, subjected to painful and unwarranted incisions that had been that had left their palates horribly mutilated, hesitating in their speech and stuttering just as before. So Yearsley obviously took great offence, thinking that meant him effectively. And I think what's here to add fuel to the fire, Liston also refused to meet Yearsley. So he refused to debate this. Uh, Yearsley tried to go to the College of Surgeons, tried to get them involved, and they said they didn't want anything to do with it. But I think here is that Liston is right. Yearsley's results weren't proven this theory of, of cutting. And I think Liston was a good enough of a surgeon and kind of medical visionary to see that cutting was not always the answer. Yeah. And it's a fantastic pamphlet the whole thing is about Liston's misconduct and how he shouldn't criticize other surgeons and the last page is all about how dare Liston criticize Yersley when he himself killed a nine-year-old boy and it goes into great detail about that surgery so it's all so hypocritical as well I need to see a copy of that because that's um is it is there any truth because uh, I know you mentioned the kind of time me gentlemen please is there any truth to that thing that he could do a lower limb amputation inside of 30 seconds i don't know about 30 seconds definitely within minutes yeah i mean he could definitely take off a leg under a minute for sure um which is mind-blowing but yeah he was very very quick at what he did i would say that you know in most of his um write-ups he does talk about being thorough as well no point doing an operation unless you're going to remove the full tumor etc so I think this idea of him just trying to be the quickest is completely ridiculous. But yes, he was very quick with with what he did. Yeah, and if anybody out there does think that that's completely mind blowing to be able to do an amputation like in a minute, um, at the risk of plugging somebody else's museum, but if you're in the area, <laughs> go to the Thackeray Medical Museum because they have a they have cinereal footage from the late nineteenth century of somebody performing an amputation. And it took me six attempts to watch this, even though it's in grainy black and white. Ouch. It's that graphic, but uh, yeah, it's it's inside of a minute. Yeah, to to do it, and it's absolutely staggering. I really recommend seeing it. I think I think it says a lot about our different personalities. They took you six goes to stomach <laughs> watching it. They took me six goes to go. So what exactly is he doing? Okay, so on the first <laughs> go, he's ah ah, that's what he's doing. Uh, hang yeah. on, next time, watch it again. Yeah, that's what he's doing, yeah. Do you know, you see all the time in the museum how people have different levels. Some people freak out when they see feet. Some people freak out when they see eyes. It just seems to be certain parts of the body. Mm. Nothing internal, because you don't see internal, but I think it's external legs, feet, eyes, certainly throws people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, back when I was a student, I attended a few operations in that kind of theatre style. It's surprising, given you say that you you started off in anatomy, (laughs) that you... (laughs) Uh, I'm not that. I've never seen an amputation. Oh, okay. Um, and so the bit that gets me is when you separate. <laughs> it's like that's not something I want to <laughs> see. Um, you know, but I've seen I, I've seen transplant. I've seen hip replacements. Like so, I've 
fully aware of just how bloodthirsty that one is. <laughs> um, it's not a patch on childbirth. That's the worst one. I've just never putting anybody I love through that. Ringside seat to a bloodbath, that was. That was. <laughs> ah. We've discussed a little bit about Liston's personality and how he's, um, shall we say, somewhat abrasive to his fellow surgeons and physicians. But there was still... 400 of his former students who turned out for his funeral. What does that say about the man, if people are still going to turn out in such numbers for his funeral? Yeah, he's he's clearly built some respect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and he was a really good teacher. I think that was the other thing. Not a very good writer, um, but I think down in London in particular, he was a kind of renowned teacher for his kind of surgical teaching. So... I'm not surprised he had that many people at his uh, yeah. funeral, and I think it just shows the, how wrong, how wrongly he's been depicted, you know, mm. um, given the fact that yeah. he had that turnout. It's not just his former students as well. There's an awful lot of the colleagues that he spent his career pissing off. <laughs> well, turned out I mean... to his funeral. I mean, they may have been turning out because finally he's dead. Yes, but yeah. <laughs> prove he's prove he's definitely gone. <laughs> But as I say, he did tend to make amends when it was due. Yeah. So him and Saim kind of had become friends again before his death. And yeah, I think you criticised where criticism was needed. And maybe yeah. his fellow surgeons accepted that <laughs> on his death. When he was no longer allowed around to be a yeah. competitor. So Edinburgh, as we know, is a hotbed of body snatching. We'd previously had your um, conservator of human remains, Cat Irving on, discussing body snatching in Edinburgh and the fact that Burke and Hare were not body snatchers. Uh, <laughs> and, and of course, Dr. Robert Knox was your museum's first conservator. He was he not? Was. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really hard to disconnect any kind of Georgian or Victorian surgeon from the, that illicit trade. But how's Liston involved in that? And what are his ethics? Do you know, I really hope this was another area that was exaggerated about Robert Liston, but he was an active participant in body snatching, uh, especially in his early years. I mean, he was assistant to John Bartley's anatomy school, and then, of course, he opened his own. So it was that kind of need to supply enough cadavers to run his own anatomy school in the 1820s. Now, as you say, a young surgeon being involved in that trade, also trade of the dead, wasn't unusual. But I think Mm. the fact that Robert Liston actually went out himself to grave sites was unusual you know most anatomists and surgeons were sitting back in their anatomy schools dealing with uh, slightly unnerving characters like they the get professional help yes professional yeah. help and then they could deny everything uh, later whereas robert liston was actually there uh, in the f- in the f- in the flesh effectively and i think it's hard for us to comprehend why anyone would go to that level but if you look at liston's motives and that uh, the teaching of surgery had kind of changed just as he was coming up the ranks. Uh, surgery used to be taught almost like a theory. So you would see a dissection, but you wouldn't actually participate. You wouldn't practice surgery on a cadaver. You would pretty much go straight on to the patient uh, after some training. And men like John Bell had worked hard to kind of focus on practical and surgical anatomy, where surgeons mm-hmm. were practicing on cadavers. And Liston was a benefactor of that. A kind of new method and it made him a much better surgeon so he was so passionate about training surgeons in a much better practice and you know he said the foundation of art of the art must be laid in the dissection room and that's still a key component of surgical training today 
Um, so you can see why he wanted to do this. But just like everything Robert Liston did, it was always on a much greater scale than everybody else. And with um, body snatching, that was no different. And I think that's why his activities are so well recorded um, and why he's often the first one that people bring up when it comes to that. The worst, I think the kind of the one that's quoted the most, and it is quite controversial because it was a child, was his resurrection of a small child in Edinburgh when he was when, for his anatomy school. So he, the child had had a condition called hydrocephalus, which is the buildup mm-hmm. of fluid on the brain. So not a hugely uncommon case, but I think because it was well widely known in Edinburgh that the child had this, that everybody was kind of focused on getting this cadaver. But the parents had actually hired a watch to look after the grave. Now, watches tended to start looking after the graves at night. So Liston and uh, Crouch, who was a London resurrectionist who came up to Edinburgh. Oh, we know Ben Crouch, yes. yes. Indeed. So he worked with him for this one. They went at dusk, so before it was dark, and they apparently arrived in a very kind of fancy horse and cart. The grave assistant looked after the cart for them because they were fine gentlemen. And a package was delivered while they were away, and then they came back and took off. And when the watch arrived the grave was empty and had been disturbed. So apparently at the time it was, you know, people were infuriated by this because the parents had worked so hard to protect this grave and that the, the boy's um, remains, that a search was com- uh, undertaken, but this was never found. But in mm. Robert Liston's Elements of Surgery, there is a, hydro- a drawing of a hydrocephalus case that everybody assumes is that one. So it's kind of that kind of obvious, quite... quite um, shocking story and I think that's why Robert Liston is kind of quoted so often because unlike his peers he was quite willing to get his hands dirty so to speak. Yeah and I suppose bearing in mind where you would normally get cadavers from the one group of people or a group of people that you don't hang are children. Indeed yeah. Um, But you're going to need to operate on children you're going to have to find them from somewhere and that's isn't that really the only way? Well, that's yeah. Sadly, in those days, it would have been because I would doubt that any parent would hand over their child. Same with women. Women were also less dissected than yeah. than men, and probably put women's health back a significant portion. And also, the, Robert Liston again causing trouble. Apparently, there was a a court an accord between the anatomy schools as to where they got their uh, where they grave snatched effectively from. And when Robert Liston came along, he completely ignored this. You know, he would go wherever the body was and just cause this complete chaos where anatomists were fighting each other over <laughs> cadavers, you know, trying to bribe the hangman. Apparently there was physical fights. So Liston effectively kind of caused all that by taking away that uh, gentleman's accord. But the an interesting story came I came across when I was researching Liston's kind of... Um, activity in this area so there's another kind of story about Liston and this one involves one of the cadavers that was supplied by Birkenhair to Robert Knox so Mm. the story goes that Liston entered Robert Knox's anatomy school and saw the body of Mary Patterson who some people say was prostitute but more recent historians say most likely not she was just a very attractive woman so would have been well known in Edinburgh small town still is in a seductive position on Knox's dissecting table now according to the story Liston was disgusted because he assumed that some of these men would have had some form of romantic relationship with Patterson while she was alive. He didn't like the way she was positioned. He didn't like the fact that these men were going to dissect her. So apparently he knocked down Knox in Knox's dissection room and ran off with Patterson's body to offer her a more suitable burial. 
I'd never heard of the story before. So it actually really? comes from a footnote in a book by Ruth Richardson called Death, Dissection and the Destitute. And I have it behind me. Oh, there fact. you go. And in the footnote, <laughs> she says that a doctor, Betty Botsetter, informed the author, well, informed her, that an undated and fragmented letter fr- survives from Robert Knox to Wakeley. Now, Wakeley was the editor of The Lancet, a famous medical uh, um, magazine, and a good friend to listen, so that's not suspicious in any way, and to which she relays these events. Now, Botsetter was Wakeley's biographer, or was supposed to be, so again, it seems relatively reasonable that she would have this letter in her possession. I just, again, think it's extraordinary that that is not known at the time because so much of working here's story was researched at the time. You know, yeah. his, his attendants were, had made statements, you know, working here's confessions were published. So I just find it very strange that that story didn't come yeah. out because Liston, again, was known as this kind of critic and him and Knox were not pals in any shape or form. Um, So I think he would have loved to have taken Knox down a peg or two. Same with Wakely. And if you're looking for somebody of good character to testify against Knox, listen's your man! Exactly, yeah. So it's very strange that it didn't come out. And also the author actually says, you know, it's a shame because if they had said something with the clout that Liston and Waitley would have had, it might have stopped more murders Mm. because Mary Parson, I can't remember, off Thomas's third or... I'd, I'm not an expert because I'm the expert in the body snatch and of course with them not being body snatchers <laughs> my interest wanes so it's just a strange kind of story but then I guess it's more plausible because I think it depends on where this letter is I think it's interesting that Ruth Richardson didn't actually include it in her chapter I'm back in here and that's a part she just included it in the note uh, the note, footnotes so perhaps she was kind of holding off until she saw it herself as well yeah. I have no idea what that letter is but if it is true, what another brilliant story mm. for Robert no- for Robert Knox and Robert Liston. So, cadavers aside, which I, I know is a pretty big leap there, <laughs> but uh, cadavers aside, you know, is is he an ethical man? Yes, I I would say so. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I think in a- any other aspect, yes. Yes, he always does good by his students. Like you said, he does good by his patients. It's just. Like, Particularly his patients, yeah. Yeah, he's just willing to go out and dig up the corpses that mm. he needs. Who yes. wouldn't? Yeah. A, a man of his time, yeah. let's if put you, it If that you way. need the corpses... <laughs> sounds so bad. If you need the corpses to make you a better surgeon, to make sure you can treat your patients better, the end justifies the, the means for Liston. Yeah, I think that's the way he saw it, yeah. I think he was more concerned, particularly with the teaching mm. of new surgeons. Yeah. You know, if they, if they didn't have the cadavers that he had... What you? What is the future going to hold? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to cut somebody open and start, well, as Cat described to us, the removing of a bladder stone, I want somebody to have seen where yeah. all those tubes go before they even start down that route. The worst. Yeah. 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 So speaking of being able to be an effective surgeon, an effective physician, um, it's often said that um, one in ten of Liston's patients died during the surgery. Is that actually a good result for a Victorian surgeon? Yep, I would say he had a pretty good survival rate compared to the other compared to the average of the time, which is also quite surprising given the fact that he undertook some groundbreaking surgeries. You know, he'd often take on cases that nobody else wanted. But I think it's probably due to a couple of reasons, and the big one that I would argue for is actually his attitude to cleanliness. Mm. And yet again, just kind of showing that he was a bit ahead of his time in this one. 
he would insist on clean aprons for for him to wear for every operation, clean instruments, clean sponges uh, for each surgical case. He was obsessed with clean sponges, actually. I mean, this is only water we're talking about, but yeah. still better than yeah. this is some other surgeons. Before Joseph Lister, isn't it? It's a lot, lot. Yep, about ten years, twenty years before Joseph Lister. He would always insist that the limb he was amputating was cleaned through the entire limb. So if he was up, uh, amputating above the knee, for example, the, the thigh would be cleaned, the wound would be cleaned before operating with a clean sponge, as I say, obsessed with sponges. And quite remarkably, actually, he would insist that the limb be shaved before the operation. Now, it wasn't until about the 20th century they they kind of discovered this was because uh, well, what the reason they did it in the 20th century was because hair obviously can withhold uh, bacteria, mm-hmm. so it's a way to kind of prepare the the limb for the amputation. But so it's, it's clear that Listen has made some form of link between cleanliness and post-operative complications long before most people had. He also strongly condemned wound dressings at the time. So when he came on the scene, um, he really hated these kind of old-fashioned dresses and very much saw them as causing problems. So before Liston, wounds would be dressed in poultices, which were effectively herbs and kind of different spices and a paste that would be mm-hmm. smothered on top of the wound and then they'd be heavily bandaged. They would also have hot dressings, a breeding ground for bacteria, effectively, yeah. um, and a good cause of infection. And what Liston did was he kind of got rid of all that and only used plain lint dripped in cold water for his bandages. Um, and he, he wrapped these very lightly and if, also to stop his patients being suffer, you know, suffering more. You know, he went through this entire operation without anesthesia and now every couple of hours someone's unwrapping your yeah. bandages and rewrapping your your bandages. Um, he also invented something called isinglass plaster as a replacement for these heavy bandages, which also helped. So his statistics were impressive because... For his mortality rate for amputations alone in London, from 1835 to 1840, it was only 15%. Now, pre-kind of antibiotics, pre-aseptic technique, that is quite spectacular. And if you talk about lithotomy, which you were just talking about, this kind of cutting for the stone, one of the few internal operations that took place before anaesthesia, the dreaded operation, because it did have a higher death rate than most, uh, some people argue that was as high as one in four, which is an extreme rate and this is not just kind of dying on the table here this is including post-operative infection as cause well this is the interesting part so there was a lot of critics at the time so because lithotomy was such a dreaded procedure but of course if you're thinking about the pain that you're undergoing having scalculi in the in the bladder and in the urinary tract it was needed liston wrote up 29 cases um quite early on in his career where he stated that only one person died as a result of the operation so that is an incredible amount. If you're talking one in four and he's doing one in 29. Wow. If I was being really critical, <laughs> I could say that surgeons didn't always count, say, people who died after a week, uh, people yeah. who'd went home. <laughs> um, Listen, in one of those cases, talks about someone who died of gastroenteritis two days later and said it's nothing to do with the operation. You know, you were suffering before he came in and you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. just a coincidence, <laughs> mate. Something to do with me, gov. <laughs> yeah. So you can Move be really on. critical that way. But what I will say about listen, you know, he's one of the he was one of the first, if not the first surgeon in the UK, to try drilling for the stone. So the first minimally invasive procedure in the whole of history, which meant that there was no incision uh, to try and get rid of these kind of bladder stones. So he was always trialing new procedures and ways to help his patient. You could also say he was quite careful of the patients that he chose. So he tended to only operate if he knew there was a success rate. Which I guess is good for the patient because he's not putting them through 
pain, but you could also say it's very good for his yeah. rates, his survival rates. You know, if he's only picking the cases that We're definitely going yeah. to. That's yeah. me being very critical. <laughs> so you mentioned there that he's like pioneers new things. He's always willing to try something. So what practices and procedures kind of has he pioneered? Possibly that we still have, and what what impact uh, has he made on on medicine? I'd say the kind of easiest impact to see that he made was the surgeons that he inspired, and um, the kind of the next generations of surgeons and what they did. So, two very soon to be prominent surgeons were present at Liston's first surgery of anaesthesia, for example. We've got James Young Simpson who was there, so impressed by the use of ether that went home to Edinburgh and developed chloroform, which was in use for nearly 50 years afterwards. A lot easier to use than ether. And then also remarkably, Joseph Lister was also at that, that operation. Yeah. He went back to Edinburgh and Glasgow, of course, was also interested, like Liston, on inflammation. And then thanks to the work of Louis Pasteur, kind of finally discovered why wounds were becoming infected and invented the aseptic technique. And because of this, Joseph Lister is named as the father of modern surgery. So I should also point out that Joseph Lister was James Syme's son-in-law. All yes. of these men were connected. So he had, he had a kind of good background, uh, Joseph Lister. So men like Liston and Syme, these kind of surgeons from the so-called butcher era, heavily influenced and inspired the next generation with their skills and innovation. And that generation is responsible for the surgery that we know today. So I'd say that's quite a big impact that yeah. Liston had. He inspired. In terms of kind of new and kind of pioneering, I think what Liston was really good at trying, not necessarily discovering new techniques, but trying them and then really kind of forcing out that as a new standard. And, and Simon was quite good at that for us well. So I would say one of the ones that he kind of transformed was amputation and the importance particularly in the amputation flap. So before, amputations used to take place with a circular saw very difficult and it also took longer and there wasn't as much of a flap left with that method so that the and the bone wasn't cut down very far so the bone was almost exposed you know it didn't have much muscle to protect it so the stump was really useless uh, you couldn't put any weight on it mm -hmm. also really difficult to close led to a lot of infection and what Liston designed was his own knife called the Liston knife shocking um of that, that yeah yeah that was sharp on both sides so that it could cut into the muscle and skin and also cut on the way out and it helped to be able to create this flap a lot quicker. He also um, invented bone cutting forceps. He was bone very cutting forceps. Forceps and they're huge. We've still got examples of them and I think it's still named after him. They've just got so much, they're so easy to use but they have so much pressure that they can quite easily snap bone and that's obviously quicker than sawing into bone and of course pre-anesthesia that is what you want quick and painless so he invented these and he was very critical of the kind of instruments that were in his words kind of designed to help less dexterous surgeons effectively so he's got a fantastic quote where he says that many instruments seem to be chiefly intended to compensate for a want of tact and manual dexterity. So <laughs> he, he was all about the simpler the instrument, you should have the skill to use it effectively. So that's why he kind of invented these, a lot of knives and cutting forceps. I think also the other thing that kind of Lister's impact was, was showing how this superior anatomical knowledge was key and understanding the human body, particularly on what could heal itself so hmm. 
knowing when not to cut, I think, is one of Liston's skills uh, and strengths. And a fantastic example of this is fractures in the bone. So kind of before Lister's time, surgeons were kind of under the impression that fractures rarely healed themselves. So that's why amputation was always yeah. kind of the go-to. So if you broke a bone, chances are you're going to lose a limb. Or because they very much saw it that that limb would therefore be useless to you and you'd be having to drag around a, a, a kind of painful and, and useless part of your body. But because Liston had done so many, you know, thousands of dissections, he had seen um, older adults where bones had, bones had obviously fused within their earlier life. Um, so he kind of had that kind of evidence to hand that bone fractures could heal, uh, especially when there was blood flow, when blood flow wasn't interrupted, uh, and then these kind of um, long bone fractures, as he called them. So he created all these guidelines on how to treat patients without surgical intervention and, and devised his own splint. Because what is interesting, the surgeons at the time felt that it was best to get the patient up and walking straight away with a broken <laughs> bone, because that would help fusion. Um, so listen, again, kind of ahead of his time. But I would, I'm just going to kind of end my rant on uh, how badly Robert Liston's been treated, because I think with his own words, I'm going to use a quote from Robert Liston, because I think these words indicate just how unfairly he and his fellow surgeons from that time period, from the 19th century, have been treated in recent history, kind of depicted as these kind of bloodthirsty, surgery-hungry showmen, unfeeling, too quick like for the scalpel. A bit like modern orthopaedic surgeons. <laughs> So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and arrogant, that's the other thing he was always kind of pinned with. And he said in a book, in one of his books on surgery, he said, I hold it to be a maxim never to be forgotten or departed from, that no operation, far less one hazardous to life, should be entered upon unless there be a fair prospect and strong probability of ultimate success. No man is entitled to put the life of another in jeopardy unless, after all the suffering and risk attendant upon the last resource, success is likely to crown his efforts. That doesn't sound like a man to me who walks into a lecture theatre, shouts tiny gentleman and then kills three people, you know. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Louise. Thank you very much. That's lifted the lid on a whole area of science and history that gets very much distorted by the narrative since. So so thank you very much for uh, for bringing that rage onto our podcast. <laughs> thank you for allowing me to get that out of my system. Do you feel better? I do feel better. Yes. Good, good. Blood <laughs> pressure down. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like a further look into the grisly world of Georgian and Victorian surgery, then you can and should visit the Surgeons Hall Museum in Edinburgh. And you can check out their website at www.museum.rcsed.ac.uk. Mouthful. Um, and you can also follow them on Twitter at Surgeons Hall. Uh, and we're going to have links to both the website and the Twitter feed in the show notes as well. And um, please do give them your time and your attendance so once again louise thank you very much yes thank, thank you. you it's been brilliant well ladies and gentlemen i hope you've enjoyed this episode um you can follow us on twitter at history rage or individually i am at paul bavel and i'm at kyle g history and if you subscribe to us on patreon you are really helping us meet the cost of podcasting your five pound per month will get you early episodes get you the invite to put uh, questions to future guests and the coveted history rage mug with a rage of your choice and you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.